have you open your Bible back to Luke chapter 1. Regardless what is going on in your life, regardless of your circumstances, the truth of what we just sang applies. If you are in Christ, it is well with your soul. It may not be well with anything else, but that's enough. Your body may be failing, the outer man is perishing, but yet the truth is the inward man is being renewed day by day. Every other thing about you may be in disarray and disorder seemingly, but as we spoke of last week, God is the order of God is the God of order, not chaos. So I trust that it's well with you. And that the eyes of faith are clearly fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read verses 46 through 56 of Luke chapter 1. And as we read, I want you to have these words in mind. These are not mine. These words belong to J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle said this concerning the song of Mary. He said, No words can express more aptly the praise for redeeming mercy, which, which ought to form part of the public worship of every part of Christ's church. So we're going to look at these verses in several different ways, and I'll explain that later. But, but first, just remember, what we're reading is a great expression of praise for redeeming mercy and redeeming grace. Mary said this. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We approach it as we do all other portions of your word, knowing that it is the very word that you have breathed out for us. All scripture is given under the inspiration of God, as holy men of God spoke, as they were moved and carried along by the Spirit. So we pray that you would take this scripture, inspired of your Spirit, and open it by that same Spirit to our understanding. Help us to glory in these truths and have no other glory. We pray and ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. So I realize what we've done is, is pulled this right out of a context. So we need to be careful to put it right back where it belongs, right? Or else we may not understand it rightly. So I'd have you back up a little further in this first chapter. 
And we'll read there in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then he said to her, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth the son and he shall and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom There will be no end. And then Mary responds to this message given her by the angel and says, How can this be since I do not know a man? This is part of the mystery of the incarnation of Christ. Conceived of the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And then he mentions the impossibility that has been made possible with Elizabeth and her bearing a son as well. And Mary goes and visits Elizabeth and we read those words where John the Baptist, the babe, leapt in the womb of Elizabeth upon the entrance of Mary and the Lord Jesus being in her womb. Make no doubt. There is life and real life at that in the womb. But we go on through this and what we've read in verse 46 through 56 is Mary's response to all of this. And I want to be careful to communicate this. I want to, if you can, if you can put this image in your mind, I want to, th- to lay three different lenses over This song of Mary. And what I mean by that is I want to approach it and look at it from three different angles. First of all, I want us to see its place in redemptive history. How this fits into the ultimate plan of God that unfolds from Genesis to Revelation, all concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. How does this significant piece of scripture, how does it fit into that larger story? And then I want to bring in another lens and I want to lay it over this as well and and see how Mary understood her place in redemptive history. And then lastly, I want to try to help us see what J.C. Ryle has said already, how this is an expression of worship for all of the redeemed for all time. Now granted, there are some things that Mary says that are only immediately applicable to her. She was the one and only mother of the Lord Jesus. And so everything that she says cannot be viewed in that way, but many of the things that she says are just as fitting coming out of our own mouths as an expression of praise to God for what He has done for us, that we have experienced the grace of His favor, or if you want to say that in reverse, the favor of His grace. So we're going to look at it in all three ways. But first, I want us to see how this fits into the larger story of redemptive history. And if you're a good student of Scripture, 
you'll notice that Mary's words greatly correspond to the same word, to the words of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And there's much common ground for both Hannah and Mary. The Lord has done great things for both of them, and they both respond. And that teaches us a lesson. The lesson that we gain from that is when the Lord does great things for you, primarily your own salvation, which you said here this morning, made right before a holy God by the blood of Jesus imputed to you by faith. When God has done a great thing for you, what is the proper response? Praise Him. Give Him thanks for what He's done. And that's what we see Mary doing. But her, this larger story, just like Hannah, and it also has much in common with many of the Psalms, Every line, if you have a good reference Bible, a Bible that will refer you back to other places in the Scripture, this song of Mary will be riddled with references to the Old Testament. Every line seems to have its foundation in another portion of Scripture. So what we learn from that, Mary is not here speaking off the cuff. She's speaking from what she has previously known and what has been previously made known to her. Her mind is well informed by the scriptures. But in redemptive history, what we see taking place here, the birth of the long foretold Messiah. Verses like Paul in Galatians 4 help us when we read, In the fullness of the time, when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. What we're reading in Luke chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, the fullness of time had come. In the plan, in the economy, and in the redemption story of God, which began in eternity past, the fullness of time had come. He has made this known by his angel to Mary, later to Joseph. Matthew records it this way for us in the first chapter, verses 21 through 24. He says, She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, when he said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated is God with us. I want you to notice as we go through how well-versed Mary was in the Old Testament scriptures. We don't know exactly how old she was. I think a a good hypothesis would be that she was in her mid to late teens. And as a young girl, in response to what God has done for her, the truth of scripture pours out of her. So let me ask all of you, But particularly the young, I realize our society gives you a pass that the scriptures don't give you. Our society gives you a pass in saying that you're young, you need not know a whole lot, and it's okay if you don't. 
The scriptures do not give you that same pass. Everywhere you look in the scriptures, you find young people being greatly used of God. You find young people who know the scriptures, they know how to apply the scriptures, they know how to live in light of the truth of the scripture. That is the expectation of every believer. Not just the mature or the aged, but every child of God. There is an expectation that you will live in the light of the truth that you have been Given, And that's exactly what Mary does when the astounding comes to her and she opens her mouth in praise to God. What comes out is truth. And in accord with the truth. No doubt she had sat at, in the synagogue very often. Even though she was from a humble family, I'll speak more of that later. No doubt she had been taught and reared in the things of God. So parents, a word for us as well. The youngest of our children not only deserve, but biblically we are required and it is demanded of us that we raise them in the fear and the nurture of God. Apparently Mary had had such a rearing. She had had such a raising. And in the larger story, I want us to see how Mary sees her own place in redemptive history. Let me be very clear. Make sure that you hear this come out of my mouth. We rightly reject Roman Catholic teaching concerning Mary as supposedly sinless and perfect, one to be prayed to and whose favor is to be sought. We rightly reject all of that and put it in its place as rank heresy because that's what it is. But we can go too far and dismiss her altogether and not give her the place that the Scripture gives her. And that's our desire as Christians. We want to rightly respond to every part of Scripture. Now, there are many doctrines that have been skewed and, and misrepresented. And our response very often is to recoil so greatly against them that we lose the truth. And so what we need to see of Mary is that the Lord highly favored her. This is what she says of herself. This is what the angel says to her, rather. She was the highly favored one, blessed among women who had found favor with God, the one of whom all generations would call her blessed. She accomplishes by the strength and help of the Spirit a great and mighty part in God's larger redemptive story. And to that, we need to do exactly what the Scripture says. Call her blessed. But we also need to realize there is enough here by her own admission to condemn her as a sinner before a holy God. The very first line, she is rejoicing in God, her Savior. She didn't see herself as sinless, perfect, immaculate. She saw herself as in great, great need. She also acknowledges her lowly state. The lowly state of his maidservant has been regarded by God himself both Joseph and Mary, even though they were descendants of David, 
And that they must be. We saw that last week out of the genealogy in Matthew, the first 17 verses, that list of names. Joseph and Mary descended from David, but were yet of the most humble families. Joseph was a common laborer, a carpenter. Remember, Jesus was despised for being in such relation to Joseph the carpenter, and Mary, and from coming from such a humble place as Nazareth. But yet this is the condition in which the Lord highly favored them. And let me stop and make another point of application here. You need not do a thing to secure the blessing of God. Consider Joseph and Mary going on about their everyday lives faithfully, performing their duties and tasks before the Lord. And yet in the midst of doing those very things, the Lord sought them out, highly favored them, blessed them with the grace of rearing the Messiah. A lot of times I'll speak to young people or hear young people say, I need to do this or that and get on with my life. Like it's some great step. Well, biblically speaking, I think you are to live a faithful life in that which the Lord has put immediately before you. And it's the living that life that the Lord will find you, provide for you, give you the desire of your heart so long as that desire has been transformed to meet his own. But this is where he finds both Joseph and Mary. She recognizes her place in this story. She is giving glory to God at every turn, at every point. And I realize we've passed over quickly these first two points, its place in redemptive history and her understanding of her place. But I'm doing that for the sake of time, because I want to get to this third point and dwell here a bit. I want us to see Mary's song as an expression of worship for all the redeemed of all time. You can sing this song. You can sing it in worship to the Lord. Notice how she begins. My soul magnifies. My spirit has rejoiced or is rejoicing. Magnifies the Lord, rejoicing in God, my Savior. True worship is a spiritual exercise. Your bodily presence here this morning does not mean that you are worshiping the Lord in a manner that is pleasing to him. Your posture has little, if any, to do with true worship. Your activity has very little to do with true worship. All of this is despised by the Lord if it is not flowing from a heart that is filled with love, gratitude, and responding to the grace that has been extended to it and Seeking to worship the Lord as 
as we would read in John chapter 4, in spirit and in truth. We know this to be true from a couple of Old Testament passages which severely condemn worship as being a bodily exercise only. And I'm calling to mind those passages, one out of Amos chapter 5, the other out of the early chapters of Malachi, and possibly even in Isaiah, the first chapter, where the people of God are going about the usual duty of doing the very things that God had commanded them. They were assembling, they were bringing sacrifices, they were burning the incense before the Lord. But do you remember what the Lord said to them who were only interested in carrying out the motions of external worship? The Lord speaks very strongly to that, and He says, I despise it. I despise your feast days. He calls their singing noise. Take away from me the noise of your songs. And then He says, I will not savor in your sacred assembly. So, just a mere bodily presence doesn't guarantee that you have worshipped the Lord at all. It might be the very opposite. It might be a rank abomination before God when your heart is so far removed from the expression of your physical body. Isn't that what Jesus said when he quoted the prophet? These people draw near me with their lips, but their heart is far removed. God willing, that is not truly said of any of us here this morning, but if it is, repent. Two words that she uses that we do well to look at, magnify and rejoice. My soul magnifies. This word means to make great, to increase, extol, or show to be great. My soul magnifies the Lord. When your soul is magnifying the Lord, it's going to come out of your external body, isn't it? Your, your voice is going to sing. Your countenance is going to be bright and cheerful. There's going to be some, some real vigor and zeal in the words that you say. Your listening is going to be intentional. Your attention is going to be wrapped upon what what the Word of God is saying, how the Spirit is using the Word of God in your life. The second word that she uses is rejoices. In this word, to be exceedingly glad. And to apply it in a metaphoric sense, it means literally to jump for joy. Now, when is the last time, not your body, but your spirit jumped for joy when considering the greatness of of your salvation and the greatness of what Christ has done for you. This word is used by Jesus when he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. It's used in Revelation 19 when the 24 elders in the sixth verse, when they heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. The soul is to jump for joy upon hearing and being reminded of the grace of God. 
in Christ. We cannot worship God rightly when our worship is void of truth. We cannot worship God to His good pleasure when we are not worshiping according to Scripture. We call this the regulative principle, right? Our worship is to be regulated by the Scriptures. Why do we pray? Why do we read the Scriptures? Why do we make an attempt to preach from the Scriptures? Why do we sing? Why do we observe the ordinances? Why do we do that? We're regulated by the Scriptures. We have not been left to our own designs. Anytime we move outside of those principles given us in Scripture, what we are saying is our wisdom is to be exalted over the wisdom of God. Surely we would confess and agree that the Lord has the right to regulate how he would be worshipped. I'm going to quote you a a sentence here from John MacArthur. He says this, and I quote it because he says it better than I can. He says, "True true worship is spontaneous. It is not staged. It is heartfelt, not artificial. It is God-centered and not self-focused. Mental, not just emotional. It seeks to honor God, not to manipulate Him. Mary praised God not only for what He was doing in her life, but also for all that He was going to accomplish through the coming of the Messiah. Several things are of note in that quotation. And I, I like the way he says that worship is mental, not just emotional. Far too often when we are brought into the worship of God, especially in this day in which we live, we are taught to enter in with emotion. Now granted, emotion is part. And overcoming love and joy for what God has done for you in Christ is part, but it must be driven by the truth, right? It must spring from knowing the truth about what Jesus has done, or else it is nothing more than carnal emotion. And will last only for a moment. But if you are worshiping in the joy of the Spirit, and when you are worshiping according to the truth, it will last not only while you sit here in this place, it will go home with you. You'll wake up with it tomorrow. It will carry you through the day. It will carry you through the week until you get right back here to do it all over again. But if your worship is driven by emotion only, it's going to be here and now in vain and do you little good anytime else and not be pleasing at any time in the sight of God. True worship is a fitting response of one who, and we'll list for you several things that are going to come right out of Mary's song. True worship is the fitting response of one who, first of all, realizes the favor God has given. Notice verse 48. The word for at the beginning is our first clue that these are reasons that are attached to her statement in verse 47. My soul magnifies, my spirit rejoices for, or you might understand verse 48, because. He has regarded the lowly state 
of his maidservant. Aren't you thankful that the Lord regards the lowly? We just sang it. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and to shed his own blood for my soul. He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. And if you take these words to be your own, he has regarded your lowly state as well as one being dead in sin, enslaved to it. And just like Lazarus in the tomb, How does he regard your lowly state? He comes as Jesus stood outside of Lazarus' tomb and he calls you out by name. John chapter 10. He knows your name. And he has said to you, come forth. And I'll remind you here of something that I began with this morning. Those of whom it is said in Scripture that they found favor with God were not searching for the favor of God. Think of Think of the testimonies of so many that we will be able to sit and speak with in the glories to follow. You think about men like Noah and Mary here, or even Saul of Tarsus. If there's not a better example, of, there's not a better example in Scripture of a man who was bent on destroying the purposes of God. And yet in the very midst of that, some of your testimonies are, are the very same. In the midst of trying to do harm against the kingdom of God, against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was at that place in time that the Lord arrested you. He intervened in your life. You weren't looking for it. That's the favor and grace of God, and that's the reason why Mary is saying, my soul is magnifying the Lord. My soul is, my spirit is rejoicing in God, my Savior. Why? Because He has regarded my lowly state. He is no respecter of persons. You are never too low for the Lord Jesus Christ to take notice of you. His condescension has no limit. But there's a second reason. True worship is a fitting response to one who has come to know that the mighty has done great things for him. That's what Mary says in verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. What an affront it is to the grace of God to claim any glory for yourself in this matter of salvation. Can a man rob God? Yes, he will. Or make an attempt. If you sit here this morning as the redeemed of God, know this. Be reminded, you contributed nothing. Jesus paid it all. All to him. We owe. This is what Mary acknowledges. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God for the mighty. He who is mighty has done great 
things for me. And holy is his name. The very opposite of all that you were. The holiness of God. You would not know God to be holy if you didn't know Christ in power. The 50th verse. True worship is a fitting response of one who understands the mercy of God is on those who fear Him. And let's rightly understand the word fear. We we know it's reverence, awe, respect. The mercy of God is on those, and think of this word rest, the mercy of God is resting on those who fear Him. So if you're here this morning as a a God-fearer in Christ, then what a comfort this verse is to you and to me. The mercy of God is on you. Makes me think of the 23rd Psalm. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But as we go on through what Mary has said, he has shown strength with his arm. The arm of God, even as we saw a couple of weeks ago, is an expression of his might, his omnipotence. He has shown strength with his arm. Think of all that God did in getting history to the point of the birth of a Savior. Think of all of the promises that he kept along the way. And think of the one great promise that is kept here in this passage when back in Genesis chapter 3, he says, there will be one who comes who will crush the head of the serpent. And here we have the mother of this one singing the praise of God. He has shown strength with his arm And just like we said, and we're reminded here that he has regarded the lowly state of his mercy, the lowly state of his servants or maidservant. Another truth of scripture comes out everywhere is that the very opposite of that is true. While he regards the lowly, he scatters the proud. The scripture says it this way, he has scattered the proud in the imagination of of their hearts, or the vanity of their hearts. In their self-deluded, self-exalting ways, the Lord has scattered them completely. And you think of the word scatter, it means to completely undo. Those who are not recognizing or wanting to be of a humble, lowly state, but because of the dragon of pride that resides in them, which, by the way, resides in you and me too. And we're reminded Very often in the scriptures, we have to cast it off, put it off, mortify that old man that wants to raise his head at every turn. But those that have not the Spirit of God in them and who remain proud in the vanity of their hearts, notice the activity of God to them. 
as we're comparing the activity of God to the lowly and his coming and favoring them with grace, it's quite the opposite to those who are full of themselves. The word here is to completely undo or unravel, scattering them. And that thought continues in the 52nd verse. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. There is a verse in the Psalms that says the same thing. He puts down one and exalts another. So who is really in control of this world and all that's going on in it? As Christians, we must say the Lord reigns, right? The Lord is in complete and absolute control. Nothing is spiraling outside of his control. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly and filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Can you help but read through this thinking of your own lost, depraved condition before God and see how he came in grace to you? How he has shown strength with his arm, how he has dispensed mercy how he has shown himself to be mighty, how he has regarded your lowly estate. But then lastly, as we finish up in verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. You remember how Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount with a string of Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. He has filled the hungry with good things. But the opposite of that truth, the rich, the proud, the arrogant, the powerful, the self-deluded, the self-preserving, He has sent them away empty. Then we come to the last, and I'll remind you we're speaking here of true worship is the fitting response of one who, the last point is, understands that God is a God who keeps his promise. Or you might want to say promises. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel. Why? in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So to rewind, what place does this have in redemptive history? Mary tells us he's kept his promise. He said one would come. He's coming. He promised it to Abraham, and he's making good on it. You know, one thing that we as Christians do well to take to the bank, so to speak, is to know that God will always, always keep his promise. What he has said he will do, he will do. 
and we worship him because he has done and will do so. And every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ. So we're here this morning as those living in a world very much going awry. But we sit here full of faith. Our God reigns. We hold to his promises. And we do so with eyes of faith. We do so even as Mary, magnifying the Lord, rejoicing in God our Savior. Because he has regarded us. He has come to our aid. He has redeemed us. And we are his. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this song of Mary and how easily it is for us to borrow her words and make them our own. Father, we magnify you. We rejoice in soul and spirit. The good hand of our God has been upon us and remains upon us. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Our hope is steadfast and sure. You appoint seasons and times of trial, if need be, and in those we are to rejoice. Because we know you are at work, producing in us patience and perseverance. Father, help us to be faithful to the end. We pray for more of your spirit, not so that we may abuse, but so that we may be kept We pray for more of your spirit that we would understand the scriptures more accurately and divide them accurately. We pray for more of your spirit so we would live in greater light. And even as we ask for it, we know that with great light comes great accountability. In a very real sense, we'll be judged for what we know, what you've shown us. Help us to prove faithful. Help us to be profitable servants. Help us to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us at every turn. Help us to bear a good and faithful testimony of the Savior who has shed His blood for us. We thank You for being full of mercy, grace, and truth. We thank you that we never come to you expecting and leave empty-handed. As our Father, you know how to give good gifts to us as your children. You never turn us away. Father, I pray also that your Spirit would accomplish that work which only you can do. That you would regenerate, that you would revive that you would bring to faith 
in Christ. Lord, help us not to be distracted. Help us not to be overcome with worry or anxiety. But to trust you at every turn. Lord, we pray that you have been well pleased in this service of worship. That you would regard it as we have intended unto your praise. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.